This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Some of the uh, the watchers on YouTube might notice that uh, the chin is here now. I have shaved off a little chin, uh, the chin music I had going on. It's spring. I'm hoping that uh, the, the weather will follow suit and, and also believe it's spring. But uh, today we have another special episode. I have with me Pierce Taylor Hibbs, and we're going to be talking about his thesis, um, well, actually, I'm not sure if this is thesis. I'll have to ask him. But uh, we're talking about his book, The Speaking Trinity and His Worded World. And this was a book recommended to me by uh, Kevin Van Hooser as I was working on my thesis. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, I, I feel like Pierce and I are, are really in sync with what we're thinking here. So I'm really excited to put his thoughts out here for you guys. So without further ado, let me just bring him in. Pierce, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, okay, so you, what is this book? Was this a book you wrote just so, to be a book, or is this your thesis adapted? This was uh, after I finished my thesis, which was called the the Trinity Language and Human Behavior, hmm. uh, and that was purely you know a thesis that was published, so that it was not for a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sat down after that, and I had done all the research, and I thought, can I write about this for a more general audience? and try to draw out some more practical applications uh, mm-hmm. for people who might not be uh, as theologically minded or, um, you know, it's probably only a small pool of people that would actually get excited about reading a dissertation. So I thought uh, this would be fun. And it, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, so yes, there's a separate book, uh, does something a little bit different, but uh, I had uh, just as much fun working on this as I did on the the dissertation, same yeah. basic, you know, content in terms of talking about the relationship between language and the Trinity, um, using the the language theory of Kenneth Pike and lots of stuff from Vern Poitras. So similar, but yeah, uh, but yeah different book. Okay, that's awesome. And, and as we've just uh, been talking off air, uh, you are part of one of my favorite. Uh, times uh, uh classes or something like that uh, at westminster because uh, a lot of you guys have been on the podcast uh, we have camden Busey was there at westminster you, so you did this work at westminster mm-hmm. time camden was there and jared oliphant and uh, paul maxwell and gracie tanto so all all these uh guests that have been on my podcast i'm uh so grateful to westminster for uh, for training you guys up you know i hadn't even thought about all of us being in the same kind of in a few years. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that until, until you mentioned it, but yeah, it was, it's been, it's been very fun. Uh, and, you know, spiritually just a deep blessing to study at Westminster, but, uh, certainly the people that you just mentioned have been formative for me. Yeah. So it's been, it's been great to study there. 
Well, and I just realized I should just go and find uh, like a directory of all those classes and just follow up with all the students that were the same <laughs> age as you guys and just, just complete the whole list. <laughs> Got to catch them all. Um, Pierce, how do you how do you get into theology at all? So uh, I was uh, I grew up with a, a father as a pastor. Uh, he passed away when I was eighteen um, from cancer, but I had I had no inkling of studying theology. Um, I was I was a professional writing major, so writing is my passion, um, and I had no plans to study theology. Mm -hmm. uh, I had actually enrolled in a writing program at another school, and at the meeting where you kind of discuss with all the other students what you want to study in your master's program. Um, I, I heard all these very fascinating topics about literature, and I realized that every person that was mentioning one of those topics, I was thinking, oh, I wonder what a biblical perspective would be on that. Mm -hmm. And it got to me, and I kind of had this revelation of um, realizing I was supposed to study theology and not writing. So I thanked everyone for sharing the, their ideas and said, I, I think I just realized I'm not supposed to be here. Wow. And uh, and then I left after that, which was probably not a very kind thing to do. But hmm. uh, that was the, my kind of revelation of, of what, you know, seeing what I needed to study. And um, about a year later, went to, to Westminster. Um, and I didn't, I, like I said, I was a pastor's kid, but I really didn't have a lot of theology. So when I got to Westminster, I was like a sponge. I just mm. soaked in uh, a lot of uh, all the, all the reformed theology that I could get there. So I was reading a lot of uh, Cornelius Van Til and mm. uh, John Frame and Vern Poitras and um, just lots of really, really deep, um, what I found to be biblically consistent theology. And I think that's why I was so uh, immersed in it. So yeah. I did my MAR there. And then uh, a few years later, discovered that I had a real passion for language and the Trinity. And then I ended up doing my THM there with, with Vern Poitras. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my a little bit of my background there. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. Well, so so you say Poitris, and I think Camden says Poitris, and I should I had uh, Dr. Poitris <laughs> on my podcast. I have no idea. I should have asked him how you pronounce it. <laughs> he probably wouldn't correct you. I don't know what uh, I don't know what's what the officially correct way is, but uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I'll have to have him on again just to just to answer that question for us. You'll have to ask him to say his own name and see what yeah. he does. I guess. Well, I, I was I was laughing to myself as you were talking about your uh, realization you need to study theology because you kept on thinking what's a biblical perspective on all these things and that's something i think uh, dr poitras has has said and then written a book on everything every one of those topics you just go through well, let's see yeah it, the, i had a, a talk with him it's it's hard to have a short talk with Vern poitras so which yeah. is great i love having longer talks with him but the last book that i wrote was called the book of giving and it was kind of looking at um at giving as a perspective on everything else, you know, God mm. giving, giving the spirit to the son, uh, God giving creation, God giving us to each other, you know, that idea. But we, we sat down for about an hour and a half and he basically said, I think, um, I think what you've just started to do is practice perspectival theology. Yeah. And uh, he saw it as being an outworking one of one of the Ten Commandments. So he said, "I think you have nine more books to write after this." <laughs> awesome. So I don't know about that, but I would love to, you know, work on the topic. So, so yeah, he's been very formative for me in, in terms of my my thinking, and uh, I love the idea of of perspectivalism. Mm -hmm. I just find that it's it's 
it never fails to be rich. There's always yeah. more to, to look at and contemplate. So, yeah, it's crazy. And, and you just, if you think you've exhausted uh, this, this certain aspect, you just switch perspectives. Yeah. And I have a whole new one and you have three more there. Well, I know uh, Dr. Poitras says multi-perspectivalism and, and it, there might be some nuance between his view and, and frames, which is tri-perspectival. But yeah, it's been yeah. super helpful. It's been like a shorthand for me as I write papers here at TED's. Uh, you know, I'll pick a topic and I'll go, well, let's just look. We're normative, situational, existential. <laughs> There's my three bodies and, mm-hmm. you know, intro and, and uh, conclusion. And we're, we're set. Yeah, that's a that's a good approach. So I had I had the uh, the fun experience of. I, by the way, I should say I never. I always thought when I was younger that if I ever did advanced studies, I would never study somebody else's work. Hmm. Like I thought, well, that's boring. Like I want to study my own idea and, and, you know, blaze a trail in some way. And I ended up studying Kenneth Pike. Uh, So I was falling into this, um, this area of studying somebody else's thought, but the, among the many benefits of that was getting to see some underpinnings of Dr. Poitras's thinking, yeah, because uh, Dr. Poitras was was Kenneth Pike's student in the the 1970s and had a, a good friendship with him. So as I read more Kenneth Pike, I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense of mm. all these things that I've been reading in Vern Poitras's stuff for years, um, and it, it led to a lot of fun uh, discussions in in Vern's office about the nature of language and uh, how we study yeah. theology and all of that. So. Yeah, that was really fun to kind of get. It's something that I, I I think I just do naturally now. Yeah. Kind of move in those triadic patterns, but they're always rich. There's always more to, to dig up with them. Yeah, it's fantastic. I I, uh, I cut out just a little bit there. I'm not sure if that was me or you, but um, I, I caught it, which is good. Um, so, okay, so we got a little bit of, of how you got into uh, into theology. Um, what you were talking about with Kenneth Pike, uh, that's I had a similar experience. So I, I read a ton of John Frame, and then I got into Poitras. But then I, I went back and read more of Van Til and his syllabi. And I would, you know, uh, Christian theistic ethics. And I saw, oh, I, I know Frame talked about this, but now I'm seeing the underpinnings of Frame's work. And then mm-hmm. I started reading uh, Bavink, uh, Bavink, mm-hmm. however you yeah. want to say it. And I saw it there too. And it's like, holy cow, this just keeps going back. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. it really is fun. I think there's uh, that's that kind of group of uh, ST theologians are my mm-hmm. go to for understanding certain issues. I look at, uh, you know, now now we have access to Voss's work, you know, so right. that's been great. So you have Voss and you have Bovink and, and then Van Til's uh, interpretation of that. And yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, rich resources there in the, in the Reformed tradition. Yeah. Well, so so I wanted to uh, start moving into your work. Um, I I haven't given it the read that I want to because some, sometimes I can skim through and I can get out the main ideas and stuff. But then every time, every page you have a quote that I want. And so I'm really going to have to slow down. So I, I have give it like my analytic skin, but I'm going to have to go through and annotate much, much more because a lot of what you're getting at is at the the center of what I've been trying to work on here at uh, at TED's as well. So I'm really excited about it. So most of my interviews, I'll have read the book and taken extensive notes with yours. It's, it's too hard because I don't have enough time. I need like 15 minutes a page. So this will be more of like just trying to get get out, uh, get a framework for, for your views a little bit more. Sure. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so I wanted to, I wanted to know, um, you know, how'd you, you, you already told us a little bit with Kenneth Pike and, and Poitras, but how'd you get into language and theology? And, and then maybe we could talk what, what is language? Yeah. So I got into the relationship between language and, and God by reading Vern Poitras's book mm-hmm. uh, in, in the beginning was the word. Uh, and up until that point, I had kind of dual interests in writing and theology. You know, so there was a language side I really loved as an English major. And then there was this theology part. And then I saw them come together in this um, intersection of language and theology and specifically language and the Trinity. And I had never thought about the connection between those things. Um, so when I started to read about it, I was just um, immediately fascinated with it and kind of couldn't stop reading. I just had to keep finding more stuff to read. Yeah. And um, eventually I, you know, after I read the book, I went and talked with, with Vern Poitras and I said, well, what should I read next? And he said, well, you should read Kenneth Pike's book, um, Linguistic Concepts. And I said, okay. So I went, read the book, thought it was very, uh, you know, unique. I thought it was unique, but I, I also thought it was fairly simple at first. Um, and that was my own ignorance. Uh, mm. It looked simple. Uh, and then as I read it uh, a second and third time, I thought, oh, this is actually a whole different way to view the world. Yeah. And I haven't wrapped my mind around that. But I remember writing a, you know, a, a outline about the book and then actually trying to apply it to a biblical passage, this language theory, and going into uh, Vern Poitras's office and saying, like, I, I'm trying to understand Kenneth Pike. Did I get it? Is this is this what he's trying to do? And um, and he was thrilled. You know, Vern was thrilled that I was studying this stuff. He, he would tell me later in a, a meeting that uh, he said something like he had been waiting for about 40 years for someone to study this mm. at Westminster. And uh, and he's been teaching at Westminster for about 40 years. So yeah. he's kind of been waiting for a while. Um, and I was thrilled because I didn't even know that the topic was that significant, you know, mm-hmm. to, to him. Um, but that's when I started to think about, um, you know, the, the relationship between language and the Trinity and some deep, deep questions started to come up to the surface for me. Um, especially concerning the nature of God. Yeah. Like this is what I was studying had, had these seemingly obvious, but, but ultimately kind of dramatic and, and paradigm shifting uh, ideas about who God is and how we interact with him. Mm-hmm. And I had never just, I had never really honed in on this idea that God was a being who speaks. And it wasn't, too long after that, that I was reading through some of John Frame's stuff, and he talked about speech as a divine attribute. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen that before. You know, I had studied theology for a few years by that point, but I had never seen anyone say, um, this is actually an attribute of God. Language and speech are not a creation. And there, there are some, you know, people that think that that's what language is. Mm-hmm. But Frame was arguing that it was actually part of, of the nature of God. And that's that made so much sense to me, I think, based on what I had read already from Bern Poitras and Kenneth Pike. And so I started to get this view of language that 
was taking over my perception of mm. the world. It was like, oh my gosh, everything is just embedded in language. Uh, that's the beating heart of the Trinity. That's the nature of reality. That's uh, how we reflect God. Uh, that's what the world is like. You know, like like had all these really deep, uh, almost philosophical questions that seem to be answered with this idea that, uh, yeah, who God is and and who I am and what the world is like are actually all intertwined with this relationship of, of God and language. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really started to um, take seriously the, the topic and eventually said, I really have to study this in more depth. Um, so I, I started doing the THM with, um, with Vern Poitras on, on Kenneth Pike's work, mainly yeah. just looking to unpack uh, how Kenneth Pike's view of language was felicitous with a, a reformed doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, so I had a, probably had an easier, I tell people I had an easier time with that topic because I wasn't really trying to convince Vern Poitras that that was true. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and Lame Tipton was my official advisor in the ST department. And I, I didn't have to do much convincing for him either. So it was easier for me to kind of uh, just work away uh, reading anything I could and uh, and write papers that were related to that. And um, that's that was my yeah. my journey into that. So, well, Pierce was um, was Kenneth Pike. He wasn't a believer himself, was he? Oh, yeah. Yes, he was. Oh, a big. Uh, yeah, he was heavily involved in uh, Bible translation. Wow, and uh, he actually a lot of a lot of people today are familiar with SIL, which is the Summer Institute of Language. It does a lot of work with um, Wycliffe and and other Bible translation companies. But that whole uh, program was actually started uh, in the gee, I want to say the maybe the forties. It's uh, Kenneth Pike and a few others were involved with with that startup, and Kenneth wow. Pike was actually the president of that for probably a good thirty years or something. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, he was. He actually went to uh, what is now Gordon Conwell. Back when he went, it was Gordon College. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he was a, he was a Christian uh, from from his youth. Uh, had a deep heart for missions. Um, okay. Actually, really, really wanted to do missions in China, and. Uh, Oddly enough, even though most people kind of looked at him as this linguistic whiz, uh, he was trying to get into uh, this program to minister in China and and couldn't actually speak the language enough huh. uh, to to do it, and so they sent him home. And it was a big, you know, heartbreaking situation for him. Uh, and yet, you know, he went on to um, to set, you know help found this language area and yeah. uh, had this, you know very cool kind of wild life of, you know, riding by donkey out into these villages that had like no access to civilization. He would physically learn a language that was not written anywhere. Hmm. And then he would make a written alphabet and then he'd start translating the Bible for them. That's crazy. Um, so yeah, really cool guy that, that just had a heart for the Lord and, and loved language. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, that was, his, his, you know, his life was kind of a, a very fun story just to read about. He was actually Nobel, uh, nominated for the Nobel Prize uh, in the early 1980s. Wow. Do you remember what for? Uh, it was a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, all of his work with, with translation. So he, wow. had done, he had done so much for, uh, you know, translating, especially for um, 
middle America uh, and uh, what he called the mixed tech uh, speaking people. So they they were one of his foci, but he trained people that kind of went all over the world yeah. and did and did what he did. So they they kind of broke into all these communities that didn't have scripture. Yeah. Learn the language, live with the people, um, tried to you know kind of demonstrate the gospel, and then translate for them. That's so cool. That sometimes um, in apologetic situations, uh, I, I work as a campus uh, minister with athletes in action, and sometimes people will bring objections about how how Christianity brings ignorance and stuff like that. And, and oftentimes we'll use that kind of uh, scenario. And we talk about well, a lot of people's languages have become written because people wanted to translate them into. Uh, a Bible into their language. And so they've helped develop their language because of that. And so actually it's brought education all over the world. And so mm-hmm. now I get to say, and Kenneth Pike was, was one of those guys, which is so oh, yeah. cool to think through. Yeah. He was a big, if you talk to anyone who is interested in uh, Bible translation, it's hard to miss his name because wow. he did, he did so much work with that. And, um, working with Wycliffe. And uh, I just saw the other day, I have a, a friend uh, who's a you know, fan of Reformed theology in, in Hawaii. And uh, he took a picture and posted it on social media, but it was this truck and it had the symbol you know, for Wycliffe on it. And then it had a little SIL symbol. And I was like, mm. oh, that's Kenneth Pike stuff. That's nice. uh, you know, all behind that. So yeah, yeah it was really fun, fun stories uh, filled his, his life. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I've always so so I've read, um, uh, like I said, a lot of of Poitras's works. Um, I don't know. I know he was influenced by Pike because he says it in all of his books. But what what um, do you know the impact that he had? What was was Pike like a perspective perspectivist or a perspectivist himself, or was it more the language side? Well, I guess it would probably be somewhat anachronistic to call him a perspectivalist since that came yeah. more in, in Vern Poitras' work. But uh, he tended to work in, in triads mm-hmm. and the triads that he worked in were kind of overlapping, intersecting very much in, in an, a kind of analogy with the Trinity, you know, yeah. the perichoresis and the interpenetration of the persons. Mm-hmm. Um so and and one of his triads that he used um, actually came from an analogy with light. So he would look at any piece of language from these three different perspectives, and one was the particle, one was the wave, mm-hmm. and one was the field. So you know, as a particle perspective, he would look at a piece of language as this little isolated chunk that was somewhat independent. Um, but he could then also take the same piece of language and look at it as a wave in terms of having a, a kind of high point or, uh, you know, if it's a certain word, it has kind of a, a, a stress syllable or something like that. But, you know, the idea is that the sound is, is in motion, the language is in motion, it's developing. And then with the field perspective, he was looking at things almost like on a grid, like in relationship mm-hmm. to other things. So those those are what he called his observer perspectives. Um, and I have an, an article in, in the Westminster Theological Journal that kind of talks about how that is explicitly Trinitarian. Um, and that's not the only way you can look at things, of course. Um, but he had several kind of he had several triads uh, in his language theory that just seemed so perspectival. You know, when you look at that now, you just think like, yeah, this was probably the way that that he thought. Um, 
so I think that uh, in my experience, I've, I've gotten to enjoy how um, Vern Poitras took that work and really connected it to the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, he told me at one point, Vern Poitras told me at one point that uh, Kenneth Pike had kind of said to him when he was studying with him, almost as an aside, I think that this kind of Trinitarian structure of language is related to God. Mm. And uh, so he never really developed it. He had one article that, you know, where he actually suggested it, but he didn't develop it. And I think that that's, that's one of the ways in which Vern Poitras' work has, has really kind of carried it forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so. fantastic. I, I think you're probably right there. And uh, that's another thing with, with Frame. He was very uh, reluctant to say this is explicitly uh, Trinitarian for, for a while, where Poitras would come out and say, yeah, of course. This is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I used to be embarrassed about saying things like that. And now I'm getting more just, you know, when people yeah. say, why does it have to be a triad? Why does it have to be Trinitarian? Yeah. I think I used to feel like, oh, yeah, maybe it isn't. And then the more and more I study it, I'm like, well, it just is. And I'll, I'll try to defend it. But <laughs> it's we're made by a Trinitarian God. So we're going to find the, the Bavinkian uh you know, vestigia trinitatis of unity and diversity, but we're also going to find it in these in these triads, and it would make yeah. sense. I, I use it. I like to use it that way. And look, I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, uh, find threes everywhere, like in a in a proof text kind of. I'm proof texting from the book of creation. But look at look at these three perspectives and see how it opens up the world to you. Oh, wouldn't that make sense if we were made by a, a Trinitarian God? Yeah, I think a good response to people who say, "Why does it have to be Trinitarian?" or "Why do you? Ha- why does this have to be a triad?" is why wouldn't it be? Uh, like this is you know this is the nature of God, and He's made a world that reflects Him. So wouldn't it make more sense for it to be? And again, it's not to say that there are only three perspectives, and I do think that's probably the you know. Um, maybe a misunderstood distinction between triperspectivalism and multiperspectivalism, mm-hmm. but that's another discussion. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and uh, I think another thing was um, uh, there's been a critique mostly by reform folks, reform folks love just picking at each other, which is all right. It's kind of part of, of, of the it's par for the course, but reform folks going against uh, Poitras and frame saying this is uh, subjectivism because they want to link this with, perspectivism instead of perspectivalism and, and yeah. the perspectivists were like the early postmoderns. And yeah. yeah, I think a lot of what they said was true though. Like they, they wanted to emphasize that the moderns were wrong. They were so obsessed with objective, the objective perspective that they erased themselves out of the picture. Yeah, I think that's true. That was one of the, one of the kind of refreshing elements of, for me, of perspectivalism, and that came from Kenneth Pike's theory, mm-hmm. was that whenever he studied language, he would say, well, you have to start with the person. Right. You don't, you don't just look at the text first. He's like, you know, you look at the person first because the person, and, and that person could be you, mm-hmm. you know, that person has a perspective. Yeah. And that's unavoidable. So you have to start with the person, not just with a thing. Yeah. And uh, and move from there, and I found that to be uh, a, a kind of refreshing element of saying there is truth, there is objectivity, yeah. but there's also perspectives, and that's actually really good news and exciting news yeah. because it means that the truth is so rich that you can't exhaust it, you know, you can't master it, mm-hmm. uh, and that's one of the things that I, I find. Uh, I've brought this up to him in conversation before, but I said in, in Vern Poitras's work, I. I tend to notice a few words that keep getting repeated Mm -hmm. in his books. And one of them is usually the word mastery. 
Hmm. People are people are trying to master uh, elements of the world almost in a godlike way. Like yeah. I want to I want to rationally understand this exhaustively. So there's no mind. no yeah. So there's yeah. so there's no mystery left. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the other word that usually comes up that's related to it is reductionism. Yeah. So we're, we're finite creatures. So if we want to master something, we have to make it small and simple so that we can master it. Um, you know, so that's, I think those things go hand in hand. And I found that it's, it's kind of liberating to, uh, to find that, yeah, I'm, I have the truth. I have the objective truth that's given to me in scripture. It's clearly taught throughout the history of the church. So there are, you know, truths I can stand on and yet God is so rich in his in his being in his uh revelation that mm-hmm. i can't exhaust it and and i'm okay with that you know i'm yeah. okay with with living with the mystery yeah and and i love that so so one of one of like the projects of my life i think is uh to kind of take the insights of uh of van Til and frame and poetry and show uh you know kind of verify them i guess with with philosophy um, because I think a lot of the best philosophers are are, are saying similar things, and so I, I read like Thomas Nagel's uh, view from nowhere, and he's saying a, a very similar thing where he's saying there's more to reality than objective reality. And when I when I first read that, it blew my mind. It freaked me out um, because I did have this like modernist uh, inclination to say no, the truth is out there, and we need to conform ourselves to. It. Of course, of course, it is, but you're neglecting the subjective perspective. And if you thought all that there is to reality is the objective perspective, you've lost yourself and all the, you know, 7 billion subjective perspectives of yeah. human beings made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the Vantillian, uh, a Christian following in the Vantillian frame or the perspectivalist frame is going to stand in the middle of modernism and postmodernism and call both sides out standing on scripture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And want to emphasize that personhood is at the base of reality because God is three persons yeah but, but he's also spoken truth to us such that we can know reality you know not not exhaustively like you said but sufficiently yeah yep i think that would be a great uh ongoing work ongoing project that would certainly needs doing i think uh you know john frame has that big tome that he's written on uh history of of western yeah. theology and philosophy uh and what i found to be kind of the, th- the thudding heart of that book is that secular, you know, non-believing philosophy is really married with autonomy in mm-hmm. some way. And the marriage has never been broken. Yeah. Um, so you can almost look at any non-believing philosophy and see this desire to be independent mm-hmm. from from God. And um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of room to continue to discuss with, with non-believers, with non-Christians, you know, how, yes, you know, you're, you're claiming objective truth, but that also doesn't um, make us little gods. You right. know, we're, we're still limited. We still are made to function in a community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think years and years ago, I, I, at Westminster, I, re- I realized that being limited was not a sin which mm-hmm. I think you just assume like, oh yeah, well at creation, you know, we were perfect. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we were unlimited, you know, that, that just means that we didn't have sin. Right. So limitation itself is, is, you know, a facet of creaturehood. It's not uh, something that's wrong with us. Um, 
So and, I think and it's that, inescapable. Yeah. It's an inescapable fast because mm-hmm. the creator creature distinction will never be, you know, even with glorified bodies, we're still going to not know everything. We're still going to need each other. We're still going to need God and mm-hmm. you don't become God. Yep. That's right. I think Van Til's quote that I, I like about that is uh, said something. I think it was man will, will never outgrow his creaturehood. Mm. And uh, I think we try to do that a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, even Christians struggle with that because we, we don't like the limitation, but we can't outgrow it. Um, it's, there's nothing above that. You know, yeah. that's, that's just how we were made. It is such a, it's such a weird, uh, I was thinking about this in, in class the other day. Uh, it's such a weird thing to be made in the image of God. It's a glorious thing, right? So in the sense we're, we're creatures and in one sense we're, we're on this side of the creature, creator, creature distinction. I'm like a raccoon, you know, I'm an animal, I'm a, I'm a thinking animal, I'm a speaking animal, but I'm, I'm still on this side of the creator creature distinction. And yet I'm made in the image of God. And so I am, you know, closer to God than a raccoon in a certain perspective. And I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to represent God to this raccoon. And so I better not torture him and represent that, you know, and, and lie about God and say, God's a uh, raccoon torturer or something. It's just such yeah. a weird spot. It's such an interesting spot. Maybe I shouldn't say weird, but it's, yeah. It's, an, it's like a paradox. Yeah. I think one of the facets of this that is, I really would love to explore just because it's, it's fun to write about these kinds of things for, for me. Um, when I was talking with, uh, with Vern Poithers about the book of giving, we were talking about uh, layers of imaging. Mm. So, uh, and there's, and one of his books on philosophy and science, I think it's one of his earliest books from philosophy, science and the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Um, which is, in my view, you know, different from some of his other work, but it sets out this whole hierarchy of creation. You know, mm-hmm. you have men created in God's image, men and women created in God's image, and then you have, uh, you know, these different facets of God's creation. Um, and yet, there's a sense in which that imaging was handed down. So, you know, we image God and then we have children in our image mm-hmm. and then beneath humanity, there, there's certain elements of humanity that we recognize in nature. Uh, so you see something like, um, you know, human attributes attributed to nature in like Psalm 19, you know, the earth um, speaks. Yeah. It's like, how does it speak? It's, it was like, well, it doesn't really speak the way we speak, but it's a kind of speech and it is, brings into view this idea of, of a kind of another imaging, like it's it's not the same, um, but there are elements of creation that are actually meant to reflect humanity who mm. reflects God. So you have these kind of embedded uh, imaging yeah. uh, pictures that it's um, – anyway, I'm sure I'll have fun with that someday. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I, I, I like the imaging language. I, always, I usually say fingerprints, and it's kind of like fingerprints mm-hmm. all the way down. But if it's our fingerprints, well, our fingerprints – is of us and we're made in the image of God. And so it, it, it translates, but this is why sin is such a big deal because when you're sinning, you're, you're imaging God, but you're lying about him. You're saying, God's like me. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a murderer. God's like that. And it's a huge deal. It's, it's a, a, a terrible thing to be made in the image of God and terrible in like the older sense of like awe and wonder, but also yeah. like, do not mess this up, but you did. And so you need Christ. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That certainly is true. And I think uh, from a personal perspective, I I think I've understood more about some of the patience of God 
uh, since I've become a father, you know, mm-hmm. now that we have, I have three kids. So, uh, seeing your own extremely limited amount of patients. And then you think about, uh, you know, oh my God, God, how does God have patience, first of all, with me, but then also simultaneously with the other billions of sinners around the world right yeah. now yeah. and in human history. And it's just that you can really get knocked back in a good way by the the patience and mm-hmm. grace of God uh, for, for sinners who are not imaging him the way that we have totally. been called to. Totally. That's amazing. Well, Pierce, I wanted to get to get a little bit back into to your work and your thoughts here as you explicate uh, Pike and Poitras. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the communicative trinity and then uh, creation through speech and uh, reality as as linguistic. Um, sure. Yeah. Can you can you lay that out first? First, uh, the the communicative trinity. Yeah, I think uh, there's a, a passage that I. Uh, found in, in John Frame's Systematic Theology that struck me. Um, it was a passage that was talking about speech as an attribute of God. Mm-hmm. And I had never thought of it that way. I had always thought of speaking as just something God did. Yeah, Like it's, well, that's just an action. That's not part of who he is. Um, and then he laid out this very biblical argument and I thought, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, well, wait a second. What does this mean if speech is, is is an attribute of God, if that's inherent to who he is. And he had a a passage not too far from that in the same book that talked about mutual love and glory in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think he talked about mutual glorification. And then I I added the love part when I was um, studying some other passages. But this idea that, well, who is God in himself? Well, God is three persons who are mutually glorifying and loving each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked at that and I thought, well, you know, definitions for things can either be really narrow or really broad. But when I see three persons, you know, leaving aside for the moment, the fact that defining what a divine person is, is hard enough. But if, if you have three persons who are having an exchange, a perpetual exchange among them, that looks like language to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, uh, this this must really be what, what Vern Poitras has in mind when he says, uh, you know, that language actually doesn't have its origins in divine human communication. Yes. It has its origins in divine, divine communication. Uh, And that's when I I think my mind started to get blown a little bit. Mm -hmm. And now every time I read scripture and I see Jesus praying, I think, oh my gosh, it's God talking to himself. You know, it's Christ talking to the spirit, you know, through the spirit to his father, God's taking self counsel. Yeah. Um, It's, it's such a wild idea. So the idea, so the communicative, Trinity is really just kind of showing or bringing that out as a point of emphasis that that it's, it's part of the nature of God to, to be a speaking being. And so that's what you, you know, when you have that, I think in the forefront, uh, it immediately changes your relationship to, to God, because you think, you know, I, you know, I think it's easy in some ways for us to think of God as an idea, Yeah. yeah, you know, as, as this hope, full idea and and we don't really talk to him you know we do our prayers at the normal times of the day because that's part of our our ritual but you pray at him yeah we pray yeah pray at him or towards him but i i thought after i I realized this i was like wait a second if if god's a communicative being and that's part of his nature and he's 
used that communication, which we'll talk about in a moment. He's used that medium to create. And then scripture says he uses the same medium to govern and sustain. Then shouldn't language be a huge part of my spiritual life? You know, shouldn't I be talking to God like a crazy person every day? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there was there was a guy in our food stores when I was growing up as a kid that everyone labeled, uh, you know, uh, this crazy guy because he would walk up and down the aisles talking to himself. And at the at in some you know strange analogous way, I think I don't think I've ever seen a Christian walk up and down the the aisles of a grocery store talking to God. But you have every reason to do that. Right. You know, that's this is the God who speaks and you should be constantly speaking to him. But we just don't do that very much. So that's that's what I was hoping to kind of pull out into the center. Like, yeah, this is not just something God does. This is who God is. And if you are claiming to be in relationship with him and you're not speaking to him or hearing him speak to you in scripture, then what are you doing? You know, yeah. that's, that was very convicting for me. Yeah. Um, so I started to realize, uh, you know, wow, I'm, this means I need to have daily time where I am being spoken to by God through scripture and I'm speaking to him because that's our relationship. You know, yeah. if I, if I'm not doing that, there's a major problem. Yeah. Well, Pierce, I gotta, I gotta jump in. Cause that, that, that hits on so many things uh, for me as well. I just think of, you know, we're called to pray without ceasing mm. and it's like that constant communication that you're talking about. And actually my dad is the crazy guy who's always talking with God. And it's like, dude, he, he really, really, really believes that God is a person. And you know that because of the way he acts and the way he prays and the way he, he, you know, reads his Bible and and sees God uh, at work in his life. And so when when I started reading Frame and Poitras and catching this kind of thing, um, Kevin Van, Doctor Kevin Van Hooser has that in uh, Remythologizing Theology. He calls it communicative yep. theism. I saw you you yep. footnote that as well. And uh, it 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 was an easy paradigm shift for me because I just looked at my own father and his relationship with God. But I thought that that makes so much sense, but that's a, that's a scarier God. That's a, like a, you know, it's not a inert view of God who's so far above us that we can't even think he's just, you know, he's still, this is a like hyper personal God who yeah. is like more of a person than I am and who's here all the time. You know, it's like looking out in the darkness and hearing a voice talk back to you and it would terrify you. It's like, that's here all the time. And he's a holy God and he's yeah. so personal. Yeah, when you, I think it's it's very potent when you mix it with the teaching of God's omnipresence. Yes, and I, I still do that with my, you know, my kids are younger right now; they're seven, five, and two. So I still have moments where I can, um, you know, kind of have fun with them and say, "Hey, um, you know, God's God's right here. He's in the room right now with us." And I think my father probably tried to do that with me when I was a kid too. But it's it really is amazing to think about how often we act under the assumption that God is not here. Right. Like to, to have a, you know, a conversation or an argument or uh, to do anything and act as if, Hey, there's someone in the room right now um, looking at me, hearing me watching, you know, know, knowing my thoughts. And, uh, and on top of all that, he actually wants me to communicate with him. Mm -hmm. That's a a really wild uh, thing. I, I, so I've been, yeah, I've been, um, been blessed by, uh, some of Van Hooser's work as well, certainly with um, bringing out that kind of linguistic uh, yeah. nature of the Trinity. Yeah, that um, also. So uh, here at TED's with um, Dr. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson, 
uh, he he would just mention random random things from the Bible. Like, what was the what's the first thing uh, the first word used of Satan? And it's like that's crafty, and I only know that because he was going to be on the test. And <laughs> uh, and and but he said, what's what, what what do we first hear about God? So we talk about how we're supposed to image God, but what do we first hear about Him? Is it that He's love? Well, no, but it, it's that He speaks. You know, in the beginning, you know, He said, "Let there be light," and the, and so instead of adding that on uh, as something that He just does, that's he communicated that that's the first thing he wanted you to know about him. Yeah. That's a, in, in the book, I kind of argue that over, over time, there's been a very good, helpful discussion in, in reform theology on, on what it means to be made in the image of God. Right. And, and the, usually the, the triad of terms that gets thrown around is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, hmm. um, which is true. Uh, but I think that, being a, a, a speaking creature is actually kind of at the heart of how all of those things are being worked. You know, I can't have knowledge or righteousness or holiness apart from the speech of God. Yeah. Um, you know, that all has to be communicated to me and then mm-hmm. I have to communicate it to others. Um, you know, so I think that speech is, is, I don't think it's always overlooked, but I think it is commonly overlooked as one of the very things that pinpoints you as human like what does it mean to be a human for me the first thing that comes out is a speaking being that's like inherent i have to be able to speak um you know and there's all the all discussions you can get into about different kinds of speech and you know people who who are mute who have to use sign language but there's always some kind of you know communication that marks us as being distinct well pierce man this is so good because um Brett Weinstein is kind of a, a public intellectual nowadays, and um, he was at the center of this evergreen uh, scandal up in the, the northwest. Um, and he had this kind of he had this debate with um, McGrath, uh, the the Christian theologian, mm-hmm. and they were talking back and forth. And, and someone from the audience asked, you know, what does it mean to be human? And he's a he's a non Christian, and he goes, well, you know, it's 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 language that's what sets us apart from the animals that's a big deal and i i want i screamed yes that's right like that that is absolutely right but it's because language is how we represent god who is the speaking trinity who is mm-hmm. eternally in communication glorifying the yeah. father glorifying the son to the spirit or with the spirit or through and yeah um and animals don't do that there's a lot of ways we're similar to animals but they they can communicate with, you know, uh, dolphins can squeak at each other, but it's not the same kind of, uh, they can't pick out the same aspects that we can with our language. Yeah. I think that is a good example of another kind of sub imaging, like mm. the, the created world images man, but man images God. So you'll find things that look like language, you know, in the animal world yeah, because that there's some kind of imaging going on mysteriously yeah. uh, through God's own creation. But yeah. There's, yeah, there's, I think the language element is what makes us human. I frankly think it's, I don't understand exactly how people argue apart from God that language is what makes us human, other than just saying that it's, you know, people talk about it as a societal development or as an evolutionary thing. And it's, I feel like there, you know, you can read arguments like that. We don't have to get into them now, but, uh, there's no, there's not really much stability for that. And language, language is such a personal thing that if you don't have a person or in this case, three persons 
behind it as the one who made it, uh, it's very difficult to explain without reducing it to kind of an, an impersonal system yeah. of signs, which is what some linguists did. You know, that's yeah. how they tried to explain it. Pierce, man, you're you're speaking my language here. So one of one of my projects has been. So I, I used to hate uh, language philosophy because. I was reading about, uh, you know, I was reading a lot of apologetics and I saw the Vienna school and the, the turn to language analysis and philosophy. And I was really mad because I was like, well, we dropped worldviews for language. Then I, I kind of came full circle after reading Poitras and seeing that language is really important uh, for image bearing and for the uh, our understanding of God. And so I kind of went back and I read some Donald Davidson and there's this thing called uh, Davidson's triangulation argument. And uh, I read in the beginning of your your book here. You you don't like to to be too speculative, and I said, well, sorry, because I, I I I don't uh, I'm a little bit more speculative, but I I don't say I'm confident on this. I'm just trying to you know reason my way through and think through. Mm-hmm. But exactly what you said about you know language doesn't come from non persons, and so you know uh, I have in order for me to have like a concept of a table, I had to triangulate with my mom. My mom had to look at me and said, Parker, can you say table? And I said, table, and I mumbled it, tried to say it. And then she showed me a different table and said, this table, right? And there's this historical process of my mom helping me form the concept of table, but she used language to do that. And if she didn't, I wouldn't know what aspect of table. She's just pointing at something through ostension. I have no idea if she's talking about a leg of a table or the color brown, but she used her word. I formed the concept. Cool. That That's how I have my concepts. I tell you of your concepts through uh, a teacher, probably our parents, but someone taught them and someone taught them and someone taught them and someone taught them. And now you see either there's a infinite regress of contingent minds teaching each other concepts, which if that's the case, it would never get to us because you literally have to span a whole uh, infinity or um, their language came from non-language and concepts came from non-concepts. But then again, you have this aspect problem. So if you're on the evolutionary chain, and you're using, you're just using ostension pointing, you'll never know what aspect you're talking about. So we talk about a dog barking up the wrong tree, but we can say that, but does the dog, is the dog barking at uh, the fluffy thing or the smelly thing or the furry thing? You know, he doesn't have the same language to communicate with us or there's a necessary mind who jumpstarted this process of triangulation, who triangulated with Adam on all the animals and taught him how to think and taught him concepts, Mm -hmm. which then passed down all the way to us. Yeah. And there's a there's a very cool um, image in in Genesis when God kind of almost hands the baton of language over no, to Adam. Exactly. You exactly. know, like he he creates these things, he names them, but then the animals he brings to Adam and says, "Well, you name them." Yes. And then there's this you know that verse that says you know and whatever Adam named them, that was what it was called. It was kind of like God giving this thing over to Adam and yeah. saying. Okay, now you have this tool, this amazing tool to understand your world and, mm-hmm. and forge forge relationships. And uh, and I do think there's an element, a, re- a kind of overlooked element of creation with language. Yeah. Like, you know, God used creation to make the world. We actually can use language to create relationships that weren't yeah. there before. Um, so that's a, that's a fun aspect of it as well. P- pronouncing people husband and wife. Yeah, speech yeah. theory and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so another aspect, so this, this mind who has to, this necessary mind who we need to start the process, which ended up in you and me having a podcast right now, uh, I would say has to be Trinitarian because you need two communicative agents in interpersonal dialogue. So you need a first person and a second person. 
And then you need a third person objective perspective for them to be talking about. And you get this in what you talked about earlier in the, the self-glorification, uh, the ad intra self-glorification that, that the father is glorifying the son, you know, to the spirit or something like that. And so mm-hmm. you see all three perspectives in the Trinity and well, why not four or five or six? Well, because three is sufficient. If you add a fourth person, you, you don't get a fourth person perspective. You still get the third person perspective. Mm-hmm. So if you have five or six or seven, it's still, you're talking about them in the third person. And yeah. so it's the sufficient condition. And so I've tried to develop like Van Til's uh, transcendental argument, you know, from the ontological Trinity from this mm-hmm. language thing. And it's hitting exactly what you're talking about in the speaking Trinity. Um so it's so fun to see it all kind of come together and you're you're delving into the theology that I need to to try and make a you know some philosophy of religion type stuff. Yeah, it's it's somewhat unexplored I think in in reform circles. I the the next article I have coming out in the Westminster Journal is is called a a linguistic view of divine persons. Hmm. And it's an attempt you know, kind of playfully to you know to answer that really mysterious question of what is a divine person. Um, And I make the argument that it's a a divine person is, um, is a a being who's, you know, one who speaks with an incommunicable attribute, you know, so you have the father, he's, he, he alone is the father, but yeah, but he's a speaker, you know, and you have the son who is alone, the, the one who was eternally generated, but he's also a speaker. Yeah. You know, so they have this this thing in common of speech, and yet they have something that makes them distinct from from each other as well. Yeah. But taking that kind of um, approach is not, I think, it's fairly novel. Uh, you know, in terms of the kind of debate about what what a divine person is, most people want to think of it as kind of a rational you know, thinking agent. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, and I just found that the you know identifying the divine persons as speakers is so much easier to yes. connect with scripture. Like yeah. it's like, Oh yeah, well I see in scripture, the father communicating with the son mm-hmm. and the you know son and the father. And then the spirit has this speaking role that comes in, mm-hmm. you know, after acts and you know, it's, it's all, um, it just makes a lot of sense of, of scripture. Well, and Pierce, I think that, I think, yes, it's, it's biblical, but it also is, is it's an easier uh, like floor to hit. You just, well, yeah, he's a speaker. So if he's a speaker and you want to say that he's a center of consciousness or something like that, um, okay, you're going to have to argue that, but the speaker is really important in, and you're, you're not a speaker if you're not a rational being as well. Yeah. Right. So you don't, you don't, someone could take aim at the rational aspect and say, well, now you have tritheism or something like that. But if you stick with the speaking language, which is biblical, you say, Okay, you figure out the rest of it, but we have three speakers here. Yeah, I think that much has been um, that that much has made me feel confident that even though talking about these kinds of things seems novel, Mm -hmm. it's so patently biblical that you can be confident. You know that yeah, this this we can at least say this. Yes. You know, and then how how it goes from here is you know probably someone else's job is a lot smarter than I am. But and, well, and then and maybe you wouldn't want to follow me here, but but also you know God speaks as one; He speaks as God, as Yahweh, and and so you see three speakers speaking as one as well. And and yeah, well, is there a mystery there? Of course, there's mystery. But God as Yahweh, when He speaks as one, is not the same as the Son, as the like. Yes, you get the mystery of the Trinity there, but mm-hmm. that's what we want. We're Trinitarians, and we want to hold to that mystery. That's okay. If we're cutting down all the mystery, we might have gone yeah. too far. And I think I'm I'm especially guarded against 
attempts to explain the doctrine of the Trinity mm-hmm. um, in a fully rational way, which in my you know limited experience has meant the use of Aristotelian philosophy sure. and, and talking about persons as relations. And there's you know space in the in the church for that kind of discussion, but mm-hmm. um, but it does make. It, I, I remember reading an article several times that was that was trying to define. Uh, a divine person using Aristotelian philosophy. And it almost read like a math equation. Like I got to the end and I thought, oh, well, I guess it's solved. You know, I I don't have to. And I thought, wait a second, I don't think I'm supposed to feel like that with the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. Um, uh, You know, if I, to a certain extent, if I can explain it, I probably haven't actually explained it. I've I've explained something less than it. Yeah. and it's bound up, it sounds more academic, but it's bound up with worship. You know, we don't worship the things that we exhaustively understand. Yeah. You know, we, we worship the God who is far above our understanding. Yeah. So I think that makes sense there as well. I think that's helpful too. Um, even, even to think of the way that Poitras uh, gives certain analogies for the Trinity. They're, they're analogies, they're, they're helpful tools, they're intuition pumps. Um, and at the end of the day, they're not going to erase all mystery. And a good Trinitarian will admit that and will say, well, no, because of incomprehensibility, because of the creator-creature distinction, we don't fully grasp this, though God has given us ways to help us understand him. Like, uh, you know, in speech, you have the the content and you have the medium and you have uh, the, the speaker or, you know, I forgot the triad there. but Yeah, I think it's it's fun for for me to think about even as an artist you know from an artist side mm. um as i come i kind of i guess i would you'd say i kind of come from a family of artists whether that's music or or um visual art mm-hmm. but and and i do the writing piece and have you don't ever want someone to tell you that creativity is limited you know as an artist oh sure it's like it's a wonderful thing to have an appreciation of infinite mystery like there's always things to explore and discover. And I think I've, I relate that in certain ways to the doctrine of the Trinity in the sense that like, it's not just that I'm okay with not understanding it. Yeah. It's that I actually find joy in not understanding it. Like it's mm. so deep and inexhaustible that I don't have to worry about like running out of creative material. Like it's, it's always going to be there. Yeah. And uh, I think once you're okay with that piece and you're not trying to kind of rationally master the doctrine of the Trinity, um, once you're okay with that, it makes it a lot easier to just appreciate the, the artistry in the world around you. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with that a lot, um, or that resonates with me a lot. Um, when, I, when I'm studying philosophy and someone has, has uh, said they, they have settled all the, the mysteries in philosophy or all the puzzles and their system doesn't, it's like, that's really unsatisfying because usually what they've done is cut down everything and, and they cut it all down into this little piece. And it's like, well, that's not even really what we were talking about. There is, I love, like you said, seeing that I don't know everything and seeing that everything, this world is so crazy when you look at it deeper and mm-hmm. you just take a, a deeper glimpse at all. And it just, it's really cool. And I think something about that is us um, enjoying our creatureliness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite quotes from Van Til doesn't come from one of his books. Um, Hmm. It came from, oddly enough, a a lecture that I just happened to be listening to back from, back in the, I guess it was probably from the fifties. So very, you know, poor audio quality, but I could make out what he was saying. And uh, 
And I was playing a piece of this lecture for some of my uh, international students because I teach uh, theological English. So I just happened to pick this Van Til lecture and thought, oh, this will be fun. Let's, let's see if my students can hear this. And, mm-hmm. and then I thought, I'll just listen to it first you know, and see what it's like. And he had this line that I, I thought I wrote down right away because I was like, that um, is really paradigm shifting. But he was talking about the mystery of the Trinity. And he said, we can't intellectually exhaust the mystery of the Trinity, you know, which everyone would say, yeah, sure, that's, you know, we can't do that. But then he said, neither can we intellectually exhaust anything else in creation because everything in creation has as much mystery in it as the Trinity. Hmm. And I was like, wait a second, that is not my understanding of the world. You know, at the time, it was kind of like you have the infinitely mysterious God, and then you have the world that you can pretty much understand exhaust, you know, Hmm. not not exhaustively, but pretty comprehensively. In Hmm. other words, I'm not going to pick up a coffee mug and find mystery. Hmm. You know, I, I, I can, I understand that. I can study it pretty exhaustively. You know, I, there's not a lot of mystery there. And yet Van Til was saying, no, you pick up any piece of creation, you're going to find as much mystery in that as you do in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And that has led to me uh, kind of playfully looking at elements in my own life and and elements in creation uh, as having that kind of mysterious uh, hint of godness in them. Um, And that was my, the book I wrote called Finding God in the Ordinary was just kind of a fun exploration of how can I see the mystery of God? of God in, uh, you know, these, this branches in this tree in my backyard, you know, how does that come through? But it was, it was affirmation for me that this is really the way it is. You know, you, you act as if you can understand everything that's going on around you. Uh, and then typically in, in times of, you know, sadly intense trauma or things like that, we realize how little control we have and how little we understand. Um, and then, you know, then once things are going well for us again, we go back to thinking that we can you know, master everything around that's us. That's right. That's right. Well, then there's so many ways to think about it too. So, I I know about this one cup maybe, but I'm not omni I'm not omnipresent. So I I don't I don't see the whole world from every perspective. I'm not omniperspectival or anything mm-hmm. like that. So there's that aspect to it. But then yeah, you go into like, well, is there a Platonic form of cup? Like, why do I call this a cup and that one a cup? And there are two different mugs and they're occupying different space. Okay, does that form live uh, exist in the mind of God or should we be deflationary? And then you think about the problem of induction and it's all, this was so fun to think through. It's just a yeah. mug, but, and, yeah. and we can use it. We can, I can pour coffee and drink from it and I need to do that. But I can also take time to reflect on that and see God's, uh, the mystery of God at work in his creation. Mm-hmm. And I probably shouldn't always do either one of those. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of healthy to do, you know, do both things. But uh, yeah, it has a it has a profound uh, ability, I think, or has it has the capability of generating awe, you know, and mm-hmm. worshipful awe, which is yeah. the best kind. You know, you right. can feel like you're actually drawn into this mysterious creator that will always be so far beyond you yeah. uh, that even the things you have right in front of you are mysterious. Yeah. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, unidentifiable, you know, that right. it's not like you don't know what you're doing in your life, but, yeah. you know, so you have some handle on them, but that doesn't mean that you have mastery over them yeah. uh, because you can't master 
you know, you can't master God, but you can't also master what he's made either. Yeah. Well, uh, Pierce, I, I wanted to, to end with um, creation through speech, uh, reality is linguistic and, and why we need like a tripersonal explanation. Yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, it would definitely be helpful I think to end on the at least on the reality as linguistic piece um, yeah. because it's just a part that I found not not very um widely considered mm-hmm. and I think that uh if you are in agreement as as probably every Christian would be that God used the medium of language to create and and when we say that we mean it's not just the case that God spoke the things into being. He also spoke how they would be, mm-hmm. you know, so he spoke, in other words, not just the tree, but he spoke the whole process of the tree germinating from the ground and bearing seeds and bearing, mm-hmm. and then having fruit. So he specifies with his words, not only what comes to be, but how it comes to be. So he uses language as a medium to create everything that we see around us. And he governs everything around us, right? It says that, that he governs all things by the word of his power yep. uh, in Hebrew. So he's doing all that through speech. And yet uh, I hadn't thought, you know, before I had written this book, I hadn't really thought about, well, what does that mean about the nature of the world around me? Like, is, it looks like it's just stuff. You know, I'm, I'm able to look out the window and see a line of trees at the edge of our property. It looks like they're just there. You know, mm-hmm. they're just things. Um, and I know what I'll find if I chop one down, you know, it's just more stuff. Um, so I was thinking, well, it, if this is really true, then is there a sense in which the stuff I see outside isn't really just stuff? It's more than that. And then I would read a passage. The, the passages that were fundamental for me were Romans 1, especially Romans one twenty, and Psalm 19, 1 through 4. So Romans 1.20 talks about how everything that God has made, like there's no qualification, all that God has made reveals him. Yeah. You know? So that's everything. You know, there's not, nothing left out of that. And then you have a passage in, in Psalm 19 that talks about everything kind of speaking about God. Yeah. And most people read that and just say, oh, well, that's a metaphor. It's like, metaphors still have meaning. You know, yeah. you can't just say, well, it's a metaphor and, and I'll just you know, it, it doesn't really mean that much. Right. It, the idea that, that that seems to be drawn out there, you know, because a metaphor usually takes two un, un, dissimilar things and tries to make a relationship between them. Uh, the metaphor that seems to be drawing out the fact that even the world that God has made, in a sense, speaks about him. Amen. Yeah. You know, it's not a kind of everyday speech like you and I have, but uh it is this, this kind of speech. And this goes, I, I realized that, you know, people like Jonathan Edwards realized this, you know, a long time ago. Um, but I think people are always afraid to call it speech because it makes it almost sound like the world is, um, is, I don't know, like the world is divine or something, or there's, yeah. uh, there's spirits living in everything. Sure. But that, that's not what it means. I think it just means that when we, when we train our eyes to see the world around us through the lens of Scripture, then what we'll end up seeing is this stuff that's around me that looks like it's just stuff. It's actually profoundly personal yeah. and it's, it's personal in the sense that it's telling me something about the personal God. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that way. You know, I just am tr- so trained, you know, in my own 
sinfulness and my own ignorance to just say, well, it's just stuff. You know, yeah. it's just, they're just trees. It's just grass. Um, scripture has this call consistently to look at the way that creation reflects the glory of God. And that's really just another way of saying the created world around you is saying something. It's yeah. communicating something about God. Um, and it's, it's really fun. You know, you said you like to speculate and I, I tend to like to do that as well, you know, but that's part of what, what I did in finding God in the ordinary is looking at a tree and saying, okay, if this is what scripture says, and if I stare at this tree, what could this possibly be saying about who God is? Yeah. And then trying to kind of flex, um, you know, some intellectual muscles to get a sense of what's going on there. And there is a little bit of speculation, but I think in some sense we're called to do that speculation. Um, if God says that his whole world is, is spoken into being, my argument in the book is that, well, that means that the effect that that had is that God's spoken world itself became something that speaks. Right. You know, like it had this reflective um, element to it. Yeah. And so we have to be aware of that when we're looking around us and not trade that for what I would say is a kind of secular view of the world is just stuff. stuff. You know, to, yeah. Well, Pierce, man, again, this is why I'm so pumped to talk with you because you're hitting on everything I love. When when I work with people on campus and they say, like, well, how do we know God exists, things like that, I, I usually point to a tree. I call it tree evangelism. <laughs> and yeah. we kind of speculate a little bit, but we, we, you know, look at this tree. Its roots go down as far as its branches go up. Most trees, it's got bark. If you cut, it'll regrow. It grows over fences sometimes if the fence is too close. Um, they all have these really smart seed dispersal systems. Some of them are helicopters. Mm-hmm. And you, you want to, the, the tree wants to land its seed in soil close enough to itself so that uh, it can survive because it, it needs to have soil similar, but not so close that it becomes competition. So some trick monkeys into eating it and, and uh, pooping it out and giving it uh, n- nutrients, right? And, and you go, yeah, isn't that brilliant? And they go, yeah, that's, that's really brilliant. And you go, yeah, but it's a stupid tree. <laughs> it, it's just a tree. It's an inanimate object. But the, there's brilliance there, but the brilliance, like that, that uh, awe and wonder, that wow, ought to terminate on God, right? Like that's the, the designer's intelligence is there, yeah. And it is, it is testifying to us. And I think we talked about um, sub imaging and stuff like that. Like there is speech there, and and we're called to reflect on that and find that and find that 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 sub image, yeah, and, and find our creator. Yeah, that's yeah. I think it's it's a that's a good that's a good piece of advice for all of us as Christians. And I think we have a call to interpret the world around us, and we don't usually think of it that way. We think of stuff just being there. We say, "Well, I don't interpret the world. I just open my eyes and I look outside." But you are interpreting it. You know, if you look out into something, into a you know a landscape, and you see a completely impersonal environment of just stuff, that's an interpretation. Yeah. And uh, what I tried to, to point out is that I, that's not the biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, st- scripture is calling us to do something a lot deeper and, and more poetic and mysterious in terms of understanding what's going on uh, in the world that looks like it's just stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, and again, it, it touches on, so I've, I've been, uh, a lot of my students, a lot of the, the athletes I work with, listen to a lot of like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson. And uh, I, I've, I've been listening to Jordan Peterson stuff since 2016. And I, I like a lot of his practical stuff. And then I have to challenge him when he, when he gets uh, more to his theoretical stuff. 
Uh, not that I'm anyone to be challenging Jordan Peterson, but I think he he's far from the Christian worldview. The the deeper he goes into his his theoretical thought, but he he sees the world uh, as two like a, a a two different way to look at the world. One way is that the world of things, and this is what science tells us, and this is kind of what you're describing. We just look out and see a inanimate world kind of thing, and then the world as a forum for action, and that totally resonates with like Van Hooser's uh, theodrama. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that's definitely like what we're called to see. It's not just a tree out there. This is God's tree. And how does God want me to think about this tree? It's mm-hmm. it's um it's furniture for the story of reality. And, yeah, and that's, that's where right. the, the the reality of persons where you and I are interacting. We could look at ourselves and we could say, you know, we're this composite of little quarks and stuff. And that's cool, but that's yeah. not what as important. The the personal is the deeper and, and more important the, the world for as a forum for action. Well, maybe I can end with this because it just struck me as you were talking about furniture because I love that idea of furniture and creation. But, uh, you know, my my wife and I were looking at pictures the other day of uh, her grandparents' home, which is just now being sold. You know, it's being cleared out. Um, her grandmother's no longer living there. Her grandfather passed away a few uh, years ago. And she was getting so emotional looking at these pictures there was no one in the house, you know, they're empty pictures of the house being cleaned out. But she said she was expressing this like overwhelming sense of emotion at knowing the person, the personal activity and the personal work that went into that house. And the people who move into that house are not going to know that, right? They're just going to say, well, it's just, you know, let's rip that out and let's change this. And, but there's a a kind of fitting illustration there in the sense that, you know, uh, this creation, this whole created world that God made is, is like his house. Like he's marked all of it. Like this isn't just stuff, you know, that was, that was taken off a chain. This was custom spoken creation, you know, by a single, uh, you know, a a tri-personal God and so in that sense, there, there's like a history and richness to that personhood. You know, we can learn so much about the personal nature of God just from yeah. being in his house. Yeah. But we don't think of it as his house. You know, we just think of it as this, um, you know, just this open field or something that yeah. has no connection. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's so critical and it's a practice. That's what I have to tell people. Mm. I think when I do it, I do I, I have to work at interpreting things like that. Mm-hmm. And you can't do it, you know, a hundred percent because you just wouldn't function. I wouldn't be able to get through the day with, exactly, you know, but I think it does take some training to, to start to say, well, when I start to be negatively affected by the perspective of just kind of walking through the world as if it's a bunch of stuff, yeah. I, I need to check that. I need to stop and, and see if it's worth, um, you know, spending some time finding the personhood of God in the world around me because it's there. Yeah. Yeah, amen, man. We, I could talk about this all day, but I've, I've, uh, you've been super generous with your time. Thanks so much, man. So again, the book is The Speaking Trinity, Why Language is at the Center of Everything. The Speaking Trinity and His Worded World, Why Language is at the Center of Everything. Pierce Taylor Hibbs, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. I would yeah. love to have you back on. Uh, again, there's other stuff I've been thinking about, like God as author of the world, and you know we live in a story, which I, I could be right up your alley as well. So sure. please come yeah. back on and uh, and we could talk some more. Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll have a chance to, to continue this conversation, but for now it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.